Stephen Gonzalez Montserrat is a postdoctoral researcher in the Fixing Futures Research Training Group at Gotra University. As a graduate of MIT's History, Anthropology, Science, Technology and Society program, his dissertation project, Cloud Ecologies, is an ethnography of data centers and their environmental impacts in the United States, Puerto Rico, Iceland and Singapore. I started by asking Stephen why data centers need to be cooled. So data centers are, if you can think of them this way, there's the repositories, the libraries, and also the kind of remote workhorses for everything that happens digitally. So there we outsource our computational work to data centers that are far away from us. Um, and we also use them to store information in computer servers, um, which are uh, meticulously arrayed and stacked in these uh, racks, which are designed and arrayed to be, um, to be cooled efficiently. And the reason they need to be cooled is because of all that work, all that computational work, which consumes electricity and heats up the computer. And, and, and if you've ever used um, a computer to do um, animation or rendering, or you've um, uh, used a really taxing application on even on your on your cell phone, or you can feel the heat of computation. Um, you can feel your your phone heating up. You can feel you can hear your laptop heating up. You can hear the fans going off. And so, data centers are warehouses filled with these computers, and all of that work is kind of being pooled. and And as a result, all that heat is being pooled. And so, data center managers. Um, have to work really hard to reject the heat that the data center generates because if the computers overheat, then they fail. Um, And this is what's called in the industry downtime. And so downtime is really costly to companies and you've probably experienced it. Any of the listeners uh, tuning in have experienced this. When you go to open an application and it says server unavailable or server outage or any kind of error message uh, along those lines, it might be because of an overheating situation in a data center. And these, um, these episodes of downtime, of overheating, uh, can cost companies um, upwards of tens of thousands of dollars per minute, depending on the kind of data center, the kind of data application we're talking about. What are the various systems that can be used for cooling a data center? So traditionally and historically, data centers were cooled um, using the kind of air conditioner that you have, um, that you might have in your home or that you might be more familiar with on a a, um, consumer or domestic scale. And so these these air conditioners, which are essentially controlling the humidity in the room, are scaled up for data centers and they're called computer room air conditioners. And so this is a very energy intensive process because it's a refrigeration process and it's all about kind of humidity control. For a long time, that was the norm in data centers. And there were many different ways that you could use these computer room air conditioners. But for the most part, um, air was the was the medium, the fluid, because air is a fluid like water um, that would actually uh, facilitate the heat exchange. It would remove the heat from the servers and um, carry the cool air, the BTUs of cooling. And this would be implemented through 
airflow management. And so the floor tiles in the data center were are perforated and this allows for there to be a kind of a cool air plenum underneath that kind of through a pressure effect comes up into the data center and then goes cycles through the equipment inside of the fan, it gets inside of the server fans and then, you know, runs cool air over the hot um, chips and boards of the computer, which then, you know, makes it so that it can function properly. But this process is very energy intensive. And over the years, they got better at doing it. They created, um, they arrayed the, the racks in the data center to be kind of alternating between cold and hot aisles. And so this was a way of containing the heat waste and then kind of like more removing it more efficiently. Uh, whereas in the olden days, the hot air and the cold air would sort of mix and it would make a lot more work for the air conditioners to, to keep the facility uh, efficiently cooled. But um, as a result of this, the carbon emissions associated with data centers started to become very noticeable and um, because of all this electricity required for air conditioning. And so the solution that many data center companies and hyperscalers and, and tech companies resorted to was to use water. And water was attractive for two reasons. One is that it's cheaper in many cases than power is. So um, they're able to actually purchase uh, you know, so if you, if you compare gallons of water versus watts of electricity used for cooling, it's it tends to be in many cases. Again, this is this is also very local, so it depends on where the data center site is sited. Um, it tends to be more advantageous to use water if you're trying to be more cost effective. The added benefit too is that the carbon emissions associated with the data center um, are significantly less. So this is a way to there's a metric that actually measures the energy efficiency of data centers, and it's called power utilization effectiveness or power use effectiveness. And so by turning to water, these data centers were able to get into these higher ratios of um, efficiency. Um, so this P, we call it PUE, power utilization effectiveness, and that significantly reduced their carbon footprint. The water-based cooling methods vary considerably. There's, a, there's many different kind of uh, configurations or permutations, but the basic spirit of this is not um, as novel as it might seem. Um, we can go back to Moorish Spain or even Mughal India thousands of years ago to think about how water was engineered as a passive cooling infrastructure inside of buildings. And so um, and during this period of, of high Islam, many buildings were designed to have water flowing through them and that water would carry the heat away from the inside of the building and because humidity is humidity control is one great way to kind of um, create cooling passively and so this these passive cooling um, infrastructures have a long history in other words and so today um, data centers use a, a similar kind of a technology um, many of them use cooling towers so water is piped through the facility um, and that water, because it's a great convective agent, just like air, carries away the heat by running water, you know, around the, where the heat is being generated. So that sometimes that's inside of the racks, that's like on the base of the rack. There's many different ways that it can be configured, but the water cycles through the entire facility, carrying away the waste heat of computation. And then it goes to a tower where it is cooled and then piped back. And this is kind of a, a circular process. 
Um, there are other, other configurations where there's heat exchangers, where there's um, more complex pumps or what we call computer room air handlers. Um, there are many different strategies to use water as a cooling agent in data centers. Tell us a little bit more about cooling uh, towers, Stephen, because it seems I've, I've been reading that these cooling towers using fresh water, and that's an important element because there's a freshwater global crisis. Um, some professor yesterday I was reading said that these represent the vast majority of data centers at the moment. I don't know if that's true or what your opinion on that is, but I know that cooling towers have reputations for Legionella d- disease and that um, there's a lot of chemicals used associated with them, bromine and, and, and other chemicals, but that they tend to have been chosen because they are the, the cheapest option and that seemingly they take up less space in a data center infrastructure as well. But maybe just tell us a little bit more about, about cooling towers, uh, their pros and their environmental uh, implications. That's a really important uh, question. Um, And so data centers uh, use, as you said, the vast majority of data centers are using potable water. So that is drinking water supply from the water utility company. Some scholars are estimating that anywhere from 5 to 10% of data center water comes from, um, you know, alternative water sources like gray water, uh, seawater, groundwater, rainwater, reclaimed rainwater. Uh, and, but the vast majority is drinking water. And there are a few reasons for that. Uh, one is that, as you said, in these extreme conditions where water is kind of flowing through this facility and it's very warm water, uh, there is the uh, biohazard that is associated with that. So microorganisms flourish in these conditions of moisture and heat. And so that is one reason why the data centers turn to potable water, because um, that water has already been to some degree treated and filtered. And so there is uh, less of a risk of of these microbial blooms happening. And so they prefer that. And for the same reason, the water can't be endlessly recycled. It has to be dumped or returned to to the sewer, because even with reverse osmosis filters and other techniques, uh, these microbes will flourish. Additionally, in the, in the desert settings where I've done a lot of research in the desert southwest, the, the water supply it has a really high sediment count. And as a result, the, the water, um, as it evaporates, can leave behind really corrosive particulates of various kinds. Um, and the, the water supply from the Colorado River is treated with a lot of chlorine. So there's chlorides. There's all kinds of sediments that can um, do a lot of damage to the computing equipment. And for that reason, you know, again, they have to resort to fresh water, drinking water. Uh, there's even a method of cooling, which is specific to uh, the more arid regions, where water is um, evaporated in, in, in the same kind of way that it is in the human body. So it's this adiabatic cooling system or evaporative cooling system where a water is kind of piped into a filter media in these really small data centers that are kind of like the size of shipping containers. 
And then that water is, is pumped up and it evaporates quickly because of the differential in temperature and the aridity. And that evaporation effect, just like sweat on the human body, uh, rapidly cools the computing equipment. But that is a very water intensive process. And so, yes, I think it's a it's a huge problem that the industry is doing this, especially because many of these facilities are located in areas of active drought. So in the USA, it's something in the order of one fifth or 20 percent of data centers are located in vulnerable watersheds. Uh, And so that's a huge problem because of the amount of water that they use and the ways that they're contributing to water scarcity and desertification. Just on those cooling towers as well, even though they're cooling the water, you're also going to be getting evaporation, aren't you? And particularly if they're located in in hot areas, you know, because essentially, and correct me if I'm wrong, a cooling tower is just, it's, it's a huge big tank, usually up in the air, is, you know, or is that the case? You describe for me a, a cooling tower and what it actually what it actually looks like. So I've had limited access to the cooling towers as a as a participant observer, as a researcher, and I think that's consistent with the overall atmosphere of security that you find in data centers. And so, to do the research that I did over the, the last seven years in data centers. As a kind of insider, um, I have met a lot of. I have. I've been. I've encountered a lot of resistance to questions and um, about water use in particular. But I will say that they they do resemble. From what I have been able to see, they do resemble um, kind of like on a really small scale water towers that are in cities. Uh, some of them have uh, like sophisticated kinds of ways to kind of enclose the the water that flows in there. Others are almost like open air, which is a little bit shocking to see. And uh, I've also seen in the case of these um, adiabatic evaporative cooling systems, as I was describing, when the water evaporates and then um, it kind of, it kind of uh, trickles down into these little channels that look almost like rivers uh, that, that uh, can cross cut the um, open courtyards that are enclosed or gates, uh, gated courtyards where all the modular data centers are, are clustered. So they have these like little channels that are, you know, just completely exposed to the, to the atmosphere. Um, and so, yes, a lot of water is evaporating in that process. Um, they're not um, very water efficient and there's no reason for them to be because there's no regulation. There's no incentive for them to be, uh, water efficient besides minimizing the cost of water that they uh, minimizing their water costs. Uh, and so there is a metric that is actually been invented by Green Grid back in 2011, which is parallel to the power utilization effectiveness called water use effectiveness. Green Grid developed this metric uh, in part to combat the issue of uh, water use in data centers, you know, from an environmental perspective, but also as a guide to help companies, um, you know, reduce their their total cost of operation. Connected with that, and you probably don't know because, as you've indicated, super super secrecy in in data centers. There, you know, the, the they've just this history of of total lack of transparency. But any ideas anywhere how much? 
these data centers are paying for their water. Now, what I can tell you, uh, based on experience, my experiences researching data centers in places like Iceland um, and Singapore and elsewhere, is data centers, many of them pursue really kind of long-term contracts with the communities, uh, countries, or uh, counties, or, or whatever the level of municipality is. They pursue these long-term contracts that give them fixed rates. And so that's one of the reasons, that's one of the ways that countries uh, or regions attract data centers is that they they say, hey, we will give you a fixed rate on power for the next two years. So even if there's an energy crisis, you will still pay this amount for electricity. Increasingly, water is bundled into that uh, because of the reliance on water for many of the, uh, for, for the cooling needs of the facility but also, it's important to note that water is also used to generate a lot of the electricity that uh, data centers use. So it's not just water for cooling that we're talking about or water for humidification because the, the internal, the indoor climate of the data center has to be humidity controlled as well. Uh, and that's to a much lesser degree. The water used to do that is it's, it's significantly less than the water used to cool it. But there's also water associated with actually generating electricity. So for many data centers, water, electricity are bundled together at fixed rates for long periods of time, irrespective of um, future fluctuations in, say, energy market prices or water market prices. And that's part of the reason why they cluster where they do is they're given these incentives. And, and the companies, the politicians, the people who are responsible for creating these incentive packages they know this. Um, and so, but they know that also the data centers need, uh, they, they, their needs are constant. So it's not like other industries. This is a 24 7, 365 industry. Um, and they, they will come if you offer them these, these incentives, even if these incentives are fundamentally unsustainable, if they're irresponsible, if they're kind of suicidal or self destructive for the industry. Why would you have a data center in a desert? Like, it seems like that's mad. Like, so why would you have uh, data centers in Arizona and, and er that area of, of the U.S. West? And like, I've dug into research there and part of it, I mean, you have these industrial farming uh, organizations there, uh, beef farming on, a, on an industrial scale. And also you have alfalfa, grass growing in that area on an industrial scale. In fact, there's a, a mega uh, Saudi company that has thousands and thousands of acres of land and it grows alfalfa grass in Arizona, which then it ships three or 4,000 miles to feed cows in Saudi Arabia. So the only logic to that is they're getting the water for practically nothing. And that is a historical a kind of fact of the American West, that water rights were extremely cheap. So they're draining the Colorado River and they're draining the aquifer. And of course, it can't last, uh, but it's, it's, it's why they're there, because they're going to the places where they can get electricity extremely cheap and water extremely cheap. And it so happens that in Arizona, even though it's in a thousand-year drought, is offering its water for extraordinary cheap rates to data centers. Yes, absolutely. Um, so 
they've incentivized this clustering, even though they have a scarce water supply. So in, in some ways, it's 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 illogical, par- paradoxical. Um, but I think why data centers are, are increasingly clustering in deserts. There's a few reasons for that. Some of them are. Um, some of them are actually have to do with how computers are designed. And so the first, the first kind of uh, advantage to putting data centers in deserts, even though we have, you know, during the summers, heat heats in excess of 40 degrees Celsius, um, there is the low aridity, which is, which can be a boon for, com- for computational needs because, um, in the tropics, it's incredibly difficult to cool data centers uh, efficiently uh, because of the high ambient humidity. And it, once data centers have a humidity threshold of something on like the order of like 80% or greater, which is 80% is, is you know, the cap based on the ASHRAE standards that are out there, which, is, which are shifting. But um, when the outside air outside of the data center is higher than 80% relative humidity, that means that the air conditioners have to work extremely hard. They use way more electricity to cool. So in, in the desert setting, that issue is largely resolved. They can also use, as I said earlier, this evaporative cooling system because it's so arid that that water will just you know, readily evaporate into the very thirsty atmosphere. And so that creates a kind of, um, from the kind of mechanical uh, point of view, that's why they, that's why deserts are attractive, even with the high temperatures. So a desert, once it has good access to water, is a great place for a data center. Yes. And then the supreme paradox of that is uh, deserts, by definition, are, are water scarce. And so, uh, as you said earlier, it's almost like a like the gold rush. There are all these companies are clustering to get this this cheap water, but it's doomed. The supply is doomed, and their unsustainable extractive practices are all but assuring that that water supply will run out. We've seen how communities are struggling to pay their water bills, while data centers and other um, industries are getting water at a much cheaper rate than even consumers are. And in the case of Valencia, New Mexico and other, and other parts of the Southwest, there are farmers who are directly competing with data centers for access to water uh, to grow food. And so there's that question as well. Um, we can also talk about how the indigenous communities in the Southwest are, are also uh, experiencing difficulty accessing water resources in their ancestral lands. And for many parts of the West, uh, the, the, this water scarcity, the draining of the Colorado River is affecting things like the migration patterns of salmon and other fish, which are really uh, important to the life cycles and lifeways of indigenous peoples, uh, you know, extending you know, as far nor- as to the Pacific Northwest and beyond. So I think this is uh, a huge issue. The desert is a problem in that way because it's 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 attracting all these data centers and then um, and it's in some ways assuring its own destruction as a result. I read just last week that historically um, the cost of water to farmers in the West and um, certainly in the Arizona California area uh, used uh, historically for the last 75 years or so has been about twenty dollars for an acre foot. 
uh, an acre foot, I think is about 330,000 litres of water. Correct me if I'm wrong, somewhere in that territory. Anyway, it's a huge quantity of water. But they've recently changed the pricing because of all these factors that you've just described. And now it's going to be over $500 an acre foot, which is an absolutely dramatic increase. So there's, there, we're already seeing the end of cheap water, in, certainly in the Arizona area. Yeah, and in, and in that way, it really is um, like a water boom. So instead of a, a gold rush, it's, it's a water rush. People, uh, these data centers are clustering. Um, while I was doing this research in the Southwest, more data center contracts were being announced, um, which seemed, uh, which a lot of people in that region, in Mesa, Arizona, for instance, opposed this and voiced their opposition, but the highest echelons of the local government were in their favor and they passed and were able to uh, proceed with construction of these facilities. But it seems like because of these, uh, all these issues that you're describing uh, with the water resources and the drought and so forth, desertification, these data centers will not last. And I think that's another thing that's really important for people to realize is that data centers themselves are ephemeral. So they know that they will eventually have to disband. And this is the, the kind of perversity of data centers coming into many communities with these promises of economic growth. Uh, there is certainly a lot of jobs that are created to construct a data center. But once a data center has been constructed, it's only a handful of people who actually run a facility. So in some cases, just a dozen people or two dozen people run a facility that is uh, consuming as much electricity as a small city. And so that is the kind of perversity of this is that they know that they're building these giant uh, data centers that are going to be using the last drops of water from the Colorado River to cool their servers. And then eventually they will just pack up and go to the next place. Literally pack up and go. Like, okay, there's a couple of things there. So when we say, how long are they staying? Five years, 10 years? I mean, it's certainly not 100. They're not intending to be there for 100 years. And when we say pack up and go, they could be gone in a weekend. Like it's 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 quite easy to dismantle some of these data. It's not as if they're going to take two years to leave. They're there for between five and 20 years, would that be right? And they could be gone in a weekend. Yes, that's correct. So between five to 20 years. And if you think about the, the equipment within the data centers themselves, the servers have very short lifespans, but even like the, the architecture, so the, the designs uh, of these facilities, and this is maybe one, one kind of point uh, that, that's important to note too, is that these companies, this industry is, is, ref, is constantly refining how it constructs data centers to be more energy efficient. Not entirely because they want to save the planet and slow global heating, but because the energy usage of these computers is constantly changing as new computers are being designed, as new servers are being designed. The best practices are always shifting, and so new designs are always coming out for for data centers. And so even the the facility itself is being rapidly obsoleted, the design of whatever facility appears. And so, yeah, so within 
five to 20 years, uh, many of these data centers disappear. And so that's really important to know. Yeah, this is not a permanent industry. Um, it is extractive like mines or other kinds of uh, industries in, uh, in that mold. Let's move on. You mentioned the tropics because that's a particular interest uh, of mine. Just before we started recording, you told me about uh, data centers in Puerto Rico. Could you, and, and that, you know, how they were uh, guaranteed their water while uh, people, local people, years after the hurricane, were not able to get water. T- can you tell us, or t- tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So in Puerto Rico, we had uh, Hurricane Maria and Hurricane Irma right before that in 2017, and those were, you know, that was the most devastating hurricane to hit the Caribbean in a really long time. Um, it was a natural disaster that killed um, over 4,000 people. There were um, tens of thousands of people who were displaced and permanently relocated as a result of Hurricane Maria. In, in the island, uh, there were people without power for over nine months. There were people who, including my extended family, who had limited access to water for much of that time as well. And so they had uh, their water supply interrupted as a result of the infrastructure being destroyed by the hurricane. But meanwhile, <laughs> the data centers on this island experienced no interruption to their water or electricity supply. And this is not a bug. This is a feature of data center design. Data centers are, are designed to be the most resilient fortresses <laughs> that you can possibly imagine. They are so hyper-redundant um, that even a hurricane of the magnitude of Hurricane Maria was not able to uh, take them down. And so, but I think that this is really political because we have to think about that the ways that we are prioritizing computers over human beings, um, and this is what we're seeing in the desert as well, right? So water for people to drink in, in, the, in, the, in the nation of Uruguay, for instance, there's a data center being constructed there that's um, going to consume something in the order of what, 55,000 people consume for water a day. And those people right now have, have to drink uh, water that has salt added to it because they're facing such a historic drought. Uh, the same can be said for Puerto Rico because while all these people were suffering, uh, this data center was running and there was no interruption. The diesel generators kicked in right away when all of the when the grid failed. The, the water redundancy measures that were in place also kicked in. They had huge tanks of water at the ready to, for their computational needs. They had reverse osmosis. They had everything that they needed to be able to function without the utilities uh, functioning. And so I think this is really important to emphasize. And it's also a question that we have to kind of ask ourselves, what is our, where are our priorities as a civilization? We, we appear to be uh, prioritizing com- computational needs over human rights. Um, and I think that's really uh, illuminating. And, and maybe another way would be to say we appear to be prioritizing TikTok videos <laughs> uh, over over human rights because like 80% of the data on the internet is video and it's not videos about how to, how to learn how to do rocket science, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I mean that that is a good point, right? So so what is what is the data? I mean that's another question that's always so difficult to ask to, to answer is 
what is the data that's in these data centers? And as somebody working who spent time inside of these facilities, walking around, working in them, I never know what I'm handling when I move a server, when I plug in a server, when I uh, decommission one, when I'm just walking through a rack. I don't know what's there. Is it payroll? Is it <laughs> is it email? Is it um, is it simulations or anything? So I think it's it's a really it's a really interesting question. You know, what why are we doing this? What is what are where are our priorities? I'm writing a piece on data center in, in, in Latin America at the moment. And communities, if you were advising communities in Uruguay or Chile or Argentina or Brazil or the countries like that, you know, that are hearing that there's a data center coming, you know, what would you say to them? I would say pay very close attention to how the local government is, um, whatever the zoning laws are of local of the local government, pay attention to any kind of local government approval of the construction of uh, said facility. I would be, um, you know, also in communication with people who are um, in some ways connected to the utility infrastructures so that you can have a heads up on to what those impacts might be. Because even though much of this is secret. There's still really smart people who can do very educated guesswork with high degrees of accuracy to kind of get some preliminary numbers out there so that people can anticipate how these these facilities will impact their communities. I think uh, grassroots mobilization is incredibly important. Uh, lately, grassroots mobilization is something that is having a much greater effect than I think a lot of folks in the data center industry were expecting. In the case of Chandler, Arizona, I was with a group of, of individuals who uh, were experiencing um, noise pollution and uh, as a result of living near data centers. And they successfully, after many years of, of um, meetings and protesting and um, organizing as a community, were able to get the first city noise ordinance passed that is specifically written for data centers uh, in the USA. And so I think that those are really important steps to take. Find out everything that you can about the land that's being used, the utility, the relationships with utility companies, speak with your local politicians, find out what they know uh, and where they stand, hold them to account, take them to task. Uh, create uh, networks of resistance and also demand, uh, make transparency demands. And the other thing that's also really important is that since these issues are now uh, on a global scale and people are paying attention to them in a way that they've never paid attention to before, which is for me very like uh, exciting to see, you can also kind of reach out beyond your local networks to get um, more attention and resources and coverage you were saying as well earlier, Todd, really interesting point about uh, in the tropics or tropical climates that data centers are um, more stressed, so to speak, in, in, in dealing with, in, in keeping the um, computers in good condition. So it's, it's quite possible that these data centers may, um, for megabyte or gigabyte of data, require more water or more energy in certain environments. But also just kind of connected with that, um, I have certainly the feeling that 
the data center companies think they can use lesser standards in poorer countries and that they might be, whereas they might be uh, beginning to not use cooling towers uh, so much in um, the USA or or Europe because of um, more stringent regulations, that they would use the cheapest, um, most cost-effective option that they can, if they think they can get away with it, basically. So I think a thing for the community to look out for, wouldn't it be, that are the standards that are being implemented for the proposed data centre in my country, in Uruguay and Chile, are they much less than the standards of a similar data centre that is being planned for implemented in, in Ireland or in Germany or in you know, and that's where perhaps working with international groups is very important. And I know I've rambled a bit there, but kind of looking at the that the in in tropical climates, that perhaps the energy and the water can be even more intense, but that the data centers will be always looking for the cheapest option because they can kind of bully the local government and say to Uruguay, well, if you don't take us, we're going to Argentina. You know, they'll play each country off each other to get the very cheapest option and to do the least work architecturally so as to get the maximum return on investment. Yeah, I mean, I think those are those are dynamics that everybody should be paying attention to for sure. Thankfully, we even though we don't have robust regulation of this industry beyond some very simple kind of what I'll call relatively toothless uh, regulations or standards that uh, work in, like the EU has passed, for instance, there isn't a, a kind of global legal standard for how data centers should operate. There are, however, um, within the industry, uh, the Uptime Institute, for instance, sets uh, certain standards for operations, uh, for operational efficiency. Um, There are different tiers of data centers uh, that are all based on this, like um, these metrics of of how resilient they are, but also part of those tiering uh, schemes have, have to do with energy efficiency as well. So sometimes using the language of the industry itself as a way to kind of highlight hypocrisy can be really helpful or as, as a way to, in, you know, kind of um, incentivize them to, you know, to, 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 to conform to their own standards. I think that's important. I think so go, going back to the issue of the tropics, if we look at the world and the future that's ahead of us, the tropical zone will be developed into a data into there will be many data centers that will be clustering throughout the tropics. So this is parts of Africa. This is parts of, you know, equatorial South America. This is parts of, um, you know, Southeast Asia as well. And it is going to be a problem because many of these data centers and the companies that run them are going to struggle with the, just the reality of the, the limits of computation in these, in, in these climates. So, they are going to be, by definition, less energy efficient. It's just impossible uh, with our current technology and standards and, and operational practices to do it more energy efficiently just because of this humidity issue, right, and these high temperatures. However, I do think it's uh, really important to note that sometimes these limitations are the mother of innovation in a way. So, so these, these limits then create a 
the conditions of possibility for new kinds of innovations in the industry. And so one example of this is Singapore. So Singapore is one of the world's data center hubs. It has a really high concentration of data centers, but Singapore is a, a, a small island nation. So there's there are many limits to the expansion of this industry there. Um, some of them are just kind of spatial limits, right? It's a small place. So there's not a lot of room for to build a lot of data centers, but also because it's a small place that's very densely populated, there are really finite energy limits in the same way that I guess Ireland has experienced this as well, is that the way that data centers pull energy from the grid, it's very taxing for, um, for and, and creates energy resource disparities and so forth. And so Singapore passed the first, one of the first moratoriums on data center construction. After they lifted this moratorium, they created really, really intensive guidelines uh, for energy efficiency for any data center that might try to locate in Singapore. They're also pioneering new ways to operate cool and energized data centers. They're doing experiments where they're trying to see what happens if you run data centers in really high humidity and temperature uh, conditions and, and if if that can be done with some energy efficiency. Additionally, they're exploring submersible data centers and um, using hydrogen fuel cells and other kinds of um, alternative energy supply chains to to do this with with less of a carbon footprint because they have um, as a nation state they have they have climate goals in mind that they're trying to reach. Maybe just circling back in, in, in the water space. I remember reading about 10 years ago, a data center designer saying about water use. And, and I'm quoting the designer said, it's, it's super embarrassing. It just doesn't feel responsible. And connected with that, I've seen these surveys from uptime, which uh, showing the 21 survey, and in fact, I think it declined in the 23 survey, the 2023 survey. That well, the 2021 survey says that 63% of data center managers said that there was no business justification for collecting water usage data. I think it's isn't that it's it's staggeringly unbelievable that there that 63% of data center managers think. There is no business justification for collecting water usage data. I mean, they must be getting the water for nothing. I mean, that they, they, they care so little about about water. I know it's beginning to change, but this is just two years ago. And as I said, the 2023 survey, uh, parts of it indicated that there was even less attention being paid to water. So it seems like they just use water as as if it's 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 free and they really don't care and unless they're forced to care they will just bleed a community dry if it's water and then move on yeah i mean i think that's that's really troubling to hear that um you know about the results of that survey were really troubling for me to read as well and and i think that's just it there's no business justification so they're not thinking about this water in, in, in the language of human rights, in the language of planetary sustainability, ecosystem stability. They're thinking of this purely in business terms. This is an asset that is used to perform a specific function inside of a data center. And it is so it has such a minimal impact in terms of the total cost of operation that it's barely worth tracking or not worth tracking at all. And so that does speak volumes about why it has been so difficult for researchers to even 
get clear information on the water use of data centers. There are, there are scholars who've done studies and published in Nature and elsewhere that are estimating something in the order of three to five million gallons of water uh, per day in the average data center. But these uh, figures are very, uh, they're, they're, there's a lot of guesswork involved in these figures because of the complete lack of transparency, but it also seems to be the complete lack of interest <laughs> in tracking um, the, the staggering use of what is, what is a really scarce and essential resource for life. And so that part uh, really I find to be you know, very troubling going forward. And as you said, there is change on the horizon or there, these companies are claiming that they have plans to change these issue, this, um, change their relationship with water but only because of community action, as you said earlier, and, 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 and stuff like that. Like, I've had the similar experience when I write or talk about these issues and data center people respond. They, they miss the entire point. They don't, they have no interest in water as a human right or that people need to drink water. And I, I constantly get this response. Data centers don't consume water like this weird a kind of techie you know view that oh it goes up in the atmosphere it'll come back down somewhere else we don't really use the water at all like as if you know it's, it's this i mean there could be people dying outside for thirst and and uh and these people are just walk by them and and not even see that they're there that, that, that sense of coldness that i find shocking in in the industry that it it feels like it has no uh role or responsibility other than to greenwash about how data is so important for understanding the climate crisis etc but it seems to have no conscious about that it is an active player in affecting and accentuating the climate crisis and that if if it was a genuine responsible citizen it could do things that would would help uh, reduce water but maybe i know your work is is shaking up uh, an industry that is only focused on the bottom line uh, and that we might see the emergence of something approaching a conscience uh, in, and, but that will only come, I think, with with citizen action, uh, because it seems like the politicians are as much on their side. Like in Arizona, the politicians fought uh, tooth and nail to uh, with Google not to give water information to the local community. So, the change, if it's going to come, will be community driven, because it's the community. It's water that's going to be devastated. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right there. And as I said earlier, grassroots mobilization should not be underestimated in this fight for water rights, water access, and water resources as desertification intensifies. Um, and as the IPCC report uh, issued by the United Nations reveals, you know, desertification is, is one of the primary drivers of the climate crisis. So it's not just about global heating and greenhouse gas emissions. We have to pay attention to how water is disappearing from the Earth's surface because that process of certification is very much um, exacerbating and intensifying the climate crisis that everyone is now feeling with uh, such clarity after uh, last after the reports of July being the hottest month on record. So I think 
it's incredibly important that uh, we hold data center companies and tech companies to account. So Microsoft, Google, and Meta have all pledged to be water positive by 2030, but those are pledges. Um, We have no enforcement mechanism whatsoever for these pledges. Uh, The information about whether or not they've met the pledge will be released by them and not not some body with government oversight or some kind of community to kind of to, to review their claims and see the data and actually weigh in on whether they have fulfilled their pledge or not. And I think this will become incredibly important as AI continues to boom and water resources uh, are taxed even further because of the intense, the intense computational work associated with artificial intelligence applications of various kinds. That's what I wanted to finish the last question on. And because, you know, we've got the AI greenwashing uh, along with the general tech greenwashing of, oh, AI is going to save the world. AI is going to uh, save the climate, blah, 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 blah. But, you know, AI is incredibly water intensive, isn't it? And, and because of the intensity of the processing that is required in AI, you get much more concentrated um, processor, you know, rack storage needs. And the more you concentrate these processors, the greater the heat becomes. And from certainly from what I've read as well, the, the more impossible it becomes for air cooling to work, that the only real cooling that that can work is, is water-based piping in these sorts of very intense concentrations. So AI will already is exploding water use in data centers, but as AI booms, the, the water demand will exponentially grow as well. Absolutely. And so we've already seen this demand grow and Google has even self-reported this. So uh, one of Google's officials uh, reported that from 2021 to 2022, so, you know, one of the big events that happened between those two years was the um, open AI boom that we're seeing uh, with the release of these these uh, various AI applications and so forth. Uh, that their their water use increased by something in the order of 20% in one year. And so that does not seem to be in line with their pledge to go water positive by 2030. And so, uh, yes, I think it's incredibly important for everybody to be paying attention to this because, as you said, the GPUs and all of the computing equipment and the computing metabolism of artificial intelligence uh, that requires a lot more energy and water to cool because we're doing more computational work, more intensive computational work. So not all computation has the same kind of metabolic weight. Uh, passively storing information does not have the same metabolic weight as you know generating a video uh, using some kind of open AI application, right? Or rendering a movie, for instance. Um, these are things that require more energy. And so it's really crucial as the years in the next few years for people to be paying attention to how uh, tech is using water, um, especially if we keep uh, turning to AI to do things. Um, and, and AI is, is becoming so integrated into workplaces and so forth. It's, there is a cost to this. Um, there's a huge cost. And uh, the question is, are we ready for it? And are we ready 
to do something about it on a, on, a, on a scale that we haven't seen before. Because if we continue to let this industry self-regulate itself, uh, we know what the outcome will be based on the pattern that we have seen. Thanks for listening. If you're interested in these sorts of ideas, please check out my book, Worldwide Waste, at jerrymcgovern.com. To hear other interesting podcasts, please visit thisishcd.com.